Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray for us as we come to look at God's Word together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. Help us to concentrate this morning. And as we look at the story of David's flight from Saul, help us to gain a greater appreciation of how much you have loved us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. When I grew up, I, I loved reading about bushrangers. In fact, here's a book that I've had since I was a really young child and um, I've read it cover to cover many, many times. Of course, it doesn't have a cover now, that's because my dog ate it. But uh, you'd read about in here people like um, Matthew Brady, uh, Mad Dan Morgan, Ben Hall and of course you've got Ned Kelly. Now, still the best, I want to say, the most accurate film about Ned Kelly's life, if you're ever interested in looking up, it's, it's a 1980 TV miniseries called The Last Outlaw. So if you're stuck at home and you're interested in something to watch, check it out and, and get hold of it. But the thing about bushrangers is they were the scourge of colonial Australia. In fact, so much so that in 1865, the New South Wales government revived an old law called the Outlaw Act and other colonies soon followed. Of course, the, the concept of outlaw, being an outlaw, often carries with it a romantic connotation, doesn't it? Um, we think of being independent, tough, free, you know, um, uh, out there to live your own life, unrestricted, doing it your way, forget the authorities. But the reality of the Outlaw Act was far less romantic. It meant that someone was declared to be outside the protection of the law and that meant that they had no safety that everyone else can benefit from, um, no protection from being murdered, no protection from being assaulted or severe punishment for anyone who helped you. Anyone could kill you for any reason and have no consequences. The reality is that when you were declared an outlaw you were forever harassed, desperate, homeless, terrified, vulnerable to betrayal because people were being given great rewards to dob you in, death from any direction. To, to be an outlaw was a miserable existence. In fact, it's the kind of existence that makes a man's last words when he's walking up to be hanged in Melbourne's jail, such is life. This is the life of an outlaw. What we're going to see in today's passage is that this outlaw-type existence actually becomes the reality, not for a hardened thief or a murderer, but for an innocent man at the hands of somebody who should have been protecting him, a brutal and tyrannical king. Now, we're going to have a fairly quick-moving work through three chapters of the Bible today, and so it's going to be particularly helpful if you've got a Bible with you at home, that you open it up and then you work through it with me um, so you can follow along as we go over the story. We're going to be looking at five scenes from David's life, and so we're not going to be able to explore everything in depth as we might like to, because I want to actually see the broad flow of what happens to David. I want us to put ourselves in David's shoes as he flees like an outlaw from one hardship to another. And not just because it's going to help us to um, understand what David went through and be moved by him, but that hopefully in the end it's actually going to help us appreciate the lengths that somebody else went to and lengths that he went to because he loved 
you. Now, to begin with, let's get up to speed with the story so far. Uh, Saul has been racked by jealousy at David's popularity. His own family have gone over to David, his daughter Michal, his son Jonathan, um, and Saul's, Saul's animosity towards David has grown and grown, so much so that, that it's moved from fits of rage of a volatile king to what seems to be a concerted campaign to kill David. And at the end of chapter 19, we see David miraculously escaping from a hit squad that Saul had sent to murder him in his bed. Well, at the beginning of chapter 20, David is in hiding and he's afraid to return home and so he confronts his friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. In verse 1, he says, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? I mean, he, as you would be, he's in distress. All he has ever done has been, has been to help Saul, to be good to him. He, he has fought bravely for him. He's soothed him with his music when those volatile moods took hold of him. He has been Saul's most loyal servant. None of this makes sense. It seems so horribly, horribly unfair. But Jonathan still seems convinced that this is some momentary thing. and It's, it's not a concocted campaign. It, it's, it's, all, it's all just going to boil over. After all, Saul would have told Jonathan, Jonathan, sure, if it was anything more than that. But David's reply to Jonathan is to go, Jonathan, you're kidding yourself. Have a look at verse 3. Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. And yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Now there was a time uh, in my ministry at a previous church uh, where a very disturbed individual uh, had set himself against the church leadership and myself in particular. And his mental state meant that you could never be sure, confident about what he would do or, or what he wouldn't do. And he was quite a big man. And he knew where I lived. He'd been to my house. He knew where I worked. And there was a time there when I would always, when I was going out to the church car park, I would look around. There was a time when if there was a noise that I heard outside the, the window of the house, that I would wonder if it was him. Um, no doubt in some or many ways, many of you on watching now have had times when you have felt distinctly unsafe. But I want to say that David's experience was many levels above mine. The most powerful man in his kingdom wanted him dead. A man with all of the resources of the state wanted him dead and had already tried that on multiple occasions. You knew it wasn't bluff or that something he might possibly do. He had already tried to do it. David had good reason to say to Jonathan, there's only a step between me and death. Uh, can you imagine the anxiety that he must have felt? It would have been immense. And yet there's the thing is that David was a servant and Saul was the king and David was expected to eat with this man every day. How could he go back without fearing that the next time Saul throws the spear, it'll hit him through the chest? 
Or the next time he goes to, to bed in his own house, he's going to find a knife across his throat from someone hiding behind something. Well, Jonathan and David decide they're going to set up a plan to work this out and they put it into action. David's going to stay away for a couple of days and Jonathan is going to note Saul's reaction to David's absence. Well, Saul does notice that David's been away and he asks Jonathan where he is. And so Jonathan tells him the story that he and David had concocted about, about going to Bethlehem and boom! If you've got your Bibles there in front of you, have a look at chapter, uh, verse 30 of chapter 20. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Yeah, the perverse and rebellious one is Jonathan's mum. Saul's kidding himself. He says, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? He always blames someone else. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. And so the truth is now well and truly out and Jonathan hears it plainly. And so Jonathan passes the news on to David and they weep together. It's not safe to return. David has to flee for his life and they both know it. But before we leave chapter 20 behind us, there is a very important detail that we must not miss. I want you to look at how David and Jonathan understood that they would interpret a negative response from Saul. Not that, that they would conclude, oh, therefore, if Saul gets angry, then Saul is really after you. Look at it. Verse 22, it would mean this, that the Lord has sent you away. If Saul reacts badly, then it means that the Lord has sent David away. If Saul wanted dead, its discovery would be a warning from God to preserve David's life. For David was the Lord's anointed. Well, David's now an outlaw, fleeing for his life with nothing more than the clothes on his back. And so immediately he runs to the nearby town of Nob, which is only about two kilometres away from Gibeah, which is where Saul and, and the court were. Now, now, Nob was a city of priests and it was currently where the tabernacle, what was there before the temple, the tabernacle of the Lord was. Um, and the beginning of this scene is pretty ominous. Have a look at verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, why would Ahimelech be trembling with fear when he sees David and with David with no men with him? Was he actually afraid of seeing David? You know, is, is he afraid of David himself or is he perhaps afraid of what David turning up and no one means that he's running from Saul and he, maybe he's afraid of what Saul would do to him. See, Jonathan might have been sheltered from the reality of Saul's true feelings but others did know that David was on the run. We know from chapter 19 that Saul had his spies out trying to find David. And so if this is what Ahimelech feared, Saul's retribution then as we're going to find out, his fears will actually be realised. But I want us to think about why David came to Nob. Why visit the tabernacle of all places when you're on the run? Is that the first place you'd go? 
Well, he probably hasn't eaten for a few days, for starters. And so David spins this yarn about um, being on a secret mission for Saul and that his men are meeting him at a special location and he needs food and, and look, five loaves of bread will do. Well, his story is obviously persuasive and, and, and he convinces Ahimelech that he and Saul must be okay again and patch things up. And on condition that David's men were ceremonially clean, he gives them the leftover bread of the presents um, that had just been taken away from the altar when the new bread that had been baked that Sabbath day had been put on there. Now, the thing about this bread is that it's ceremonial bread and it was presented as an offering to God, like as a sacrifice. So it was very holy. And according to the law of, of um, the priests only were allowed to eat this bread. But Ahimelech seems to make an exception for David because he believes David's on a holy mission. Now, as an aside, because we're having to fly over these three chapters, there's a fair bit that can actually be said about this incident that unfortunately we don't have time to cover because this is actually an incident that Jesus specifically refers to in the New Testament. Um, But that's something that I'm going to address in tomorrow's Sermon Seasonings podcast, so tune into that. But this is why David came into to the tabernacle. Was that it? Just to get bread? Because he knew he'd find bread there on a day when it wasn't allowed to be baked anywhere else because it was a Sabbath. Well, let's think. If you're an outlaw with people chasing after you, seeking your death, what else do you need to survive on the road other than bread? Well, David casually, as if he's just thought of it, Uh, asks um, the priest if he happened to have a spear or a sword there as well because uh, his secret mission for Saul was really urgent and and David didn't bring one with him. Well, wouldn't you know it, as providence would have it, there was a sword there. Have a look at verse 9 in your Bibles. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. This is not just any sword that happened to be at the tabernacle that day. It was Goliath's sword. It was a big, top-of-the-line, Philistine-made sword. They were the best metallurgists of the region. It was a sword whose last location, we are told, happened to be in David's own tent after he had killed Goliath. And so presumably, it was David himself who had given the sword to the tabernacle as an as a offering, as a dedication to the Lord. In other words, David knew very well that the sword was there and that's actually why he went to the tabernacle, to get that sword. But there is one other thing that he came to do there that we only find out later in chapter 22, verse 15. As was David's habit, When he was there, he also inquired of the Lord. Now, what does that tell you about him? That in his despair, in his terror, in his desperation, the first place that he went to seek guidance was to get help from his God and to put his situation before the one who has loved him and chosen him. Where is the first place that you turn for guidance when you're in distress? Well, what are we to make that what are we to make of the fact that there's kind of an elephant in the room here, isn't there? 
David lied. He just straight out lied to Ahimelech. There wasn't a mission from Saul, that was a lie. He had no men, that was a lie. The whole thing was made up. What are we to make of that? Well, David was afraid, he was hungry, he was desperate, and that's sometimes what desperate people resort to, to survive. The narrator makes no comment on whether it's right or wrong, it's, it's just what David did. But sadly, David's deception is going to have horrible consequences for Ahimelech. An informant of Saul's was there that day, Doeg the Edomite, and we're going to hear about this foul piece of work a little later. So what next for David? He can't stay there. And we know from later that David knew that Doeg had actually seen him, so he knew that the clock was ticking. Well, if you want to appreciate just how desperate David was, have a look at where David goes next. Verse 10 of chapter 21. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Gath! David actually tries to hide out in Gath. It was a Philistine city, not just any Philistine city, it was a city that Goliath came from. And what is David carrying? Goliath's Philistine-made sword. Now, this seems like a, a mad thing to do. Actually, David probably thought that he, in his desperation to hide himself in the in the very last place that anyone would think that he would ever go. Hoping against hope that maybe he could just be there incognito and cover his face and not be recognised. But sadly, he was too famous, even in Philistia, for that. That wretched song that so got under Saul's nose was well known by the Philistines as well. And I suspect that they liked it even less because they're the ones being sung about. Look at verse 11. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And if that wasn't dangerous enough for David, did you notice what they called him? The king of the land. But the Philistines knew that Saul was king. So what are we to make of this? Well, I think we can only suppose that they read into the song that the Israelite women were singing that David was either going to be Saul's replacement, which is what Saul feared, or that he was the one that really led Israel and that Israel's hearts followed. Either way, you've got to understand, if you're David, this puts you in an even more dangerous position because it's been highlighted and said out loud that you are the Philistine enemy number one and they've got you in their hands. You know, for the only time in the whole of both books, 1 and 2 Samuel, we're told that David was very much afraid. The man that had the faith and the courage to take on lions and bears and charge towards a gigantic Philistine has finally gotten to the end of his tether, is finally in a state of panic. 
He's terrified. He's been pursued by those trying to kill him in his own country. Now he's in the hands of people who had every reason to hate him more than Saul ever could because they had lost loved ones at David's hands. Surely there is even less than a step now between David and his death. And so in his desperation, David once more resorts to deception. This time he plays the crazy card. He carries on like he's lost his mind. He lets drool run down his beard and, and, and scratches at the doorposts like he's an animal. You know, I can bet he was wild-eyed, incoherent, crazy eyes, all of that sort of stuff. He puts on a real show. You can expect that it was the whole madman package. And it was genius. Because whatever threat that they might have thought that he was, well, he's clearly not a threat now. And frankly, he's embarrassing. Can we just get him out of the room? Um, and in one of the more amusing lines of Scripture, look at what Archish says there in verse 14 and 15. He says, look at the man, he's insane, don't bring him to me. I love this. Am I so short of madmen? Man, I've got a madman collection, I don't need another one. Um, d- did you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? You're shaming me, you're embarrassing me. Must this man come into my house? And the outlaw Messiah makes another miraculous escape. Well, on his release, he flees up the Elah Valley, halfway between Gath and Bethlehem, to a large cave called Adjulam, and there he hides out. And it probably, for the first time in days, he can stop. And in that dark cave, take a breath. And we know that from the Psalms that he wrote later about this experience, that probably it all came on top of him and overwhelmed him as for some of the things he wrote later on because that's what his life has now become he's a fugitive living in a cave and terrified of whoever might poke their head around the corner and yet you know that it's actually in that cave that events start to turn for david because he is discovered by friends. Around the outlaw Messiah, people start to gather. First his family, his father, his mother, even his brothers, even presumably Eliab, you might remember, who had so resented David in the incident with Goliath. And they've come to join him in the cave. It was a big cave. Um, We know that you can go there in Israel today. And and as David's family, their lives are probably in danger from Saul too because Saul knew where David lived. And as you'll see, Saul has no problem killing a whole bunch of people. And then he's joined by many others. Have a look at verse 2. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. You see, many others had suffered under Saul's tyrannical regime and they hear of David, and they find out where he is, because Agilom was also in Judah, kind of David's home territory, and they join him there. And they weren't the elite, and, and they weren't the successful, they were the poor, the outcasts, the discouraged, the disillusioned. They had seen that Saul did nothing for them, and they chose to put their hope in a new leader, a new champion, a righteous man, a man who saved people. And the beginnings of an army starts 
to form the David gang. You know, by the time David's story is over, by the end of 2 Samuel, a number in this ignominious gang of outcasts gathered in the cave around David would soon become and counted among David's mighty men. They would be warriors of renown, heroes forever of the kingdom of Israel. Well, after a while, David realises that a cave and its surrounds is no place for his ageing parents. And so he leaves them in the care of the king of Moab, um, where you know that Ruth's family, his great-grandmother, had come from. But after a while, in a, in a desert stronghold somewhere in the fringes of that land, we don't know for how long it was, the prophet Gad finds David and sends him a word from the Lord and says, the Lord has sent, who had sent him out now calls him back home. Now, the final scene we unfortunately don't have time to delve into, but it is a tragic postscript. Saul complains, he's having a big whinge about, no one cares about me, no one tells me that everyone's aligning themselves with David. And so Doeg the Edomite decides that here's a chance to get some favour. And so he tells him about the help that Ahimelech had offered David. Because of David's earlier ruse, Ahimelech is none the wiser. He's got no idea what's really going on. But it doesn't save him. Saul orders his death. And in a display that shows just how evil Saul has become, he also orders the death of all the priests of the town of Nob. All the priests of the Lord. The king of Israel killing priests of the Lord. No one, however, is prepared to do this sacrilegious deed for Saul, who forever keeps getting other people to do his dirty work. Well, all except one, Doag the Edomite, and he's more than happy to do it, and he takes it on with relish, and he murders every living thing in the town, men, women, children, infants, animals. He slaughters them all at the command of Saul. While the king of God's choosing is hiding in a forest, the king of, of the people's choosing has now shown how completely like the kings of the nations he is because he's doing their work and destroying the priests of the Lord. He is a murderous enemy of God and he is an oppressor of the people. But let's take our mind back to David. Did you put yourself in his shoes? What a journey. Driven from place to place, fearing death at every turn. Seeing those that you love, driven from their homes. Knowing that those who showed you kindness were murdered, were being hunted down despite your innocence. And being hunted down despite your innocence. There was, that was the outlaw experience of David. The Lord's anointed that God had chosen to rule his people, the Lord's Messiah. Do you know that no less than five psalms that David wrote explicitly refer to this period that we've looked at today, this period of hardship and terror? And I encourage you to read them when you get, uh, um, when you get home. You are home. Uh, read them at your home. So Psalms 34 and 56, he wrote about his captivity 
in Gath and his feigned madness and his deliverance from there. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 are about him taking refuge in the cave. And Psalm 52 is a stinging rebuke of Doeg's evil deed. And at points when you read these psalms, they can be deeply moving. I mean, just got one line here from Psalm 56. Look at it. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. That's what David went through. He speaks of his distress. He cries out for mercy. But these psalms reveal more than his fears. Through all of this, David knew that he was in the Lord's hands. And the Lord would vindicate him in the end. These are psalms of faith as well. In Psalm 56, he writes, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Those were the words with which he encouraged himself. What can mere mortals do to me? I am the Lord's anointed. In all of his trial, in all his loneliness and his pain, David continually turned to God for comfort. 142 verses 1 to 3. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. Repeatedly during his ministry, Jesus pointed out that scripture taught that the Messiah must suffer. And that is what we've seen. The pattern set in the life of David, right from the beginning of the kingship, with, with the suffering of David, the hands of evil men, both from outside the nation of Israel and tragically from inside the nation of Israel. And when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus, who though he was... He wasn't just a good man like David was. We've seen David's flaws. But Jesus was perfect. He was God the Son. And yet God the Son, when he came as Messiah, would be able to say this of himself, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He's driven from place to place. Who, who despite his miraculous deeds, his great deeds on behalf of his people, was hated without reason as he faced the fickleness of the people and the envy of the Pharisees, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Jesus, who didn't share David's faults and yet amplified his hardships. But Jesus faced a much darker and lonelier cave Jesus, who could say in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's Jesus saying that. That's what he was feeling. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Who was he to fear that and feel that? But then more importantly, he placed himself in his father's hands. Take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours. And then he was betrayed and he suffered and died on a cross under a sarcastic sign, the king of the Jews. 
And yet we're told in Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. What joy? I'll tell you what joy. The joy of seeing you redeemed. The joy of seeing gathered around him a bunch of sinful, unimpressive, often foolish, regularly despised by the world people like us. Transformed into saints, mighty men and women, made fit to stand in his glorious kingdom in the presence of the living God for all of eternity. That was the joy set before him and that's why he endured all of that suffering. For you, for me. See, I wanted us to put ourselves in David's shoes, yes, to imagine what that persecution for David must have felt like. But because I wanted us to recognise the deep reality of what the Messiah, what Jesus went through, not to save himself, but to save us. And I wanted, by knowing that, for us to love him for it. To love him. To treasure him for what he has done for you. And never, ever to be ashamed to follow the one who went through all of that for you. But I also, and especially can I say, if you're someone who is experiencing right now significant fear, hardship, severe trial and distress, I want you to know that if you're a Christian, you follow a king and are loved by a king that really understands your pain and your loneliness and your hurt. And if you're not a Christian and you're going through all of that, can I say, why not turn to the one who can be there with you when no one else can? Why don't you call upon Jesus and ask him to be your refuge? Jesus said in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be bullied if you've been bullied. He knows what it's like to be threatened and persecuted and abandoned. And if David could find his refuge and comfort in the Lord, even in the midst of his suffering, even in the dark cave, how much more can we, knowing that the God that we turn to has actually come down among us, and been there himself, and gone through all of that David went through, and way more, that he did that because of his love for us. So no wonder Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. To that, David would say, Amen. But there is a final thing that I want us to reflect upon. See, to be a Christian is to throw in your lot, your life, with Jesus. We are his people, gathered around him, the ones who recognise that the stone that the builders rejected is in fact the cornerstone, the foundation. 
We are the people that God is building together around the outlaw Messiah who the world rejects but we love. And yes, glory and eternal life is to come because of him. But in the meantime, listen to the words of your Saviour from Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you love and follow Jesus, then such is life, because he is your glorious outlaw king. Amen.